0: Reading Short and Deep Hi, I'm Jesse And I'm Eric And today we're reading Short and Deep The Awakening by Arthur C. Clarke First published in a magazine or a fanzine called Zenith, February 1942 Revised uh, for a publication in future uh, January 1952 and there was also another story where he reworked this sort of premise. Um, it's called *Exile of Eons*. Um, I haven't read that one, but I, I feel like I have because the plot summary is fairly similar, and it's also a relatively short story. Have you uh, are you familiar with *Exile of Eons*? Not that I remember, but I've
1: I read Clark. I read Clark. Started reading Clark a long time ago, and in fact. Um, I actually wrote the first uh, biocritical um, book about him.
0: Mm. Mm. Well, then you you probably did read it. He, he, he does like to rework themes and rework uh, novels and revise them. And I think um, sometimes that's uh, for the better. Um, but I'm also not a hundred percent sure it's always for the better.
1: But, well, that's something we can worry
0: about with yeah, this particular story That's right um, I was hoping that you could uh, read us From the original uh, It's it's quite short And it's quite to the point And it's also quite nice to read I'll give it a shot, Jesse Thank you
1: The Awakening 1942, Arthur C. Clarke The master wondered Whether he would dream That was the only thing he feared, for in a sleep that lasts no more than a night, dream may come that can shatter the mind, and he was to sleep for a hundred years. He remembered the day, still only a few months ago, when a frightened doctor had said, Sir, your heart is failing. You have less than a year to live. He was not afraid of death, but the thought that it would come soon upon him, in the full flower of his intellect, while his work was still half finished, filled him with a baffled fury and there is nothing you can do he asked no sir we have been working on artificial hearts for a hundred years in another century perhaps it might be done very well he had replied coldly i shall wait another century you will build me a place where my body will not be disturbed and then you will put me to sleep by freezing or any other means that at least i know you can do He had watched the building of the tomb in a secret place above the snow line of Everest. Only the chosen few must know where the master was to sleep, for there were many millions in the world who would have sought out his body to destroy it. The secret would be preserved down the generations until the day when man's science had conquered the disease of the heart. Then the master would be awakened from his sleep. He was still conscious when they laid him on the couch in the central chamber. Though the drugs had already dimmed his senses, he heard them close the steel doors against their rubber gaskets and even fancied he could hear the hiss of the pumps which would withdraw the air from around him and replace it with a sterile nitrogen. Then he slept, and in a little while, the world forgot the master. He slept the hundred years, though rather... Before that time the discovery he had been awaiting was made, but no one awakened him, for the world had changed since his going, and now there were none who would have wished to see him return. His followers had died, and mysteriously the secret of his resting place was lost. For a time the legend of the master's tomb persisted, but soon it was forgotten, so he slept. After what, by some standards, would have been a little while, the earth's crust decided that it had borne the weight. Of the Himalayas for long enough. Slowly the mountains dropped, tilting the southern plains of India towards the sky, and presently the plateau of Ceylon was the highest point on the surface of the globe, and the ocean above Everest was five and a half miles deep. The master would not be disturbed by his enemies or his friends." Slowly, patiently, the silt drifted down through the towering ocean heights onto the wreck of the Himalayas. The blanket that would someday be chalk began to thicken at the rate of not more than a few inches every century. If one had returned some time later, one might have found that the sea bed was no longer five miles down or even four Or three, the land tilted again and a mighty range of limestone mountains towered where once had been the oceans of Tibet. But the master knew nothing of this, nor was his sleep disturbed when it happened again and again and again. Now the rain and rivers were washing away the chalk and carrying it out to the new oceans and the surface was moving down towards the buried tomb, slowly the miles of rock were washed away until at last the metal sphere, which housed the master's body, returned once more to the light of day, though to a day much longer and much dimmer than it had been when the master closed his eyes. And presently the scientists found him on a pedestal of rock jutting high above An eroded plain. Because they did not know the secret of the tomb, it took them, for all their wisdom, 30 years to reach the chamber where he slept. The master's mind awoke before his body as he lay powerless, unable even to lift his leaden eyelids. Memory came flooding back. The hundred years were safely behind him. His desperate gamble had succeeded. He felt strange elation and a longing to see the new world that must have arisen while he lay within his tomb. One by one, his senses returned. He could feel the hard surface on which he was lying. Now a gentle current of air drifted across his brow. Presently, he was aware of sounds, faint clickings and stretchings all around him. For a moment, he was puzzled. Then he realized that the surgeons must be putting their instruments away. He had not yet the strength to open his eyes, so he lay and waited. Wondering, would men have changed much? Would his name still be remembered among them? Perhaps it would be better if it were not, though he had feared the hatred of neither men nor nations. He had never known their love. Momently, he wondered if any of his friends might have followed him, but he knew there would be none. When he opened his eyes, all the faces before him would be strange, yet he longed to see them. To read the expressions they would hold as he wakened from his sleep. Strength returned. He opened his eyes. The light was gentle and he was not dazzled, but for a while everything was blurred and misty. He could distinguish figures standing round, but though they seemed strange, he could not see them clearly. Then the Master's eyes came into focus, and as they brought their message, To his mind, he screamed once feebly and died forever. For in the last moment of his life, as he saw what stood around him, he knew that the long war between man and insect was ended and that man was not the victor.
0: Thank you. My Uh, pleasure. I, I, I like this kind of story a lot. Where it's short, it gets to the point. It really tells uh, a science fiction story. Um, I, I was on a Twitter argument earlier, <laughs> earlier this week, with somebody about, you know, what makes something science fiction, and you know, rockets in outer space shooting at other rockets with people and that's not science fiction to me. Science fiction to me is stories that are about science and the products of the fruits of science, what we know about science. This is a story about geologic time, about how things have changed on the earth over billions of years and giving that sense of awe and the smallness of man in the in life, but also in, in the space of the, of the universe. This story, uh, is a time travel story essentially that's designed to showcase how small man's reign upon the earth has been and how short it will be. And I think it just uh, does that masterfully very shortly. (laughs) That was an accidental pun there. Uh, uh. I
1: think that, um, You're right. It's certainly a science fiction story in my view, too. Uh, It's not clear to me that it talks about the shortness of man's reign. Uh, This, after all, maps out geologic time. Mm -hmm. Uh, Gosh, uh, the Himalayas get submerged and then they get re-emerged, um, orogenesis, uh, the word from geology, occurs, and then they are eroded, and only then do we find uh, the master awakening to consciousness again. So, if we're talking about, well, I don't know, half a billion years, uh, <laughs> we don't know at what point humanity lost in its competition with insectum, um, but it is certainly clear, I think, that the aspirations of the master are not fulfilled. Mm-hmm. That even going through time, he does not get what he wants. And in that sense, this is a little bit like Tythonus, you know, uh, behold, uh, my works, ye mighty, and despair. Um, it says in the poem uh, about the pedestal uh, writing at the foot of a fallen. King, um, because the desert has overwhelmed him. W- human works are not what they should be. Uh, reading this today
0: mm-hmm.
1: in 2018, 2019, um, it, one can't help but remember that Hitler uh, feels a lot like this master. Mm-hmm living alone, not having friends, and ultimately committing suicide in a bunker. But this is 1942, so um, maybe Clark, you know, realized how hunkered down um, someone like the master would eventually have to be, and how even if he managed to succeed in his own small homocentric ideas, that is, human-centered ideas, um, he would not, in fact— Come back to the world that he imagined at all uh, This is in that sense uh, Sort of a prescient World War II story mm.
0: There's um, there's a number Of connecting themes to later uh, And earlier uh, Stories as well um, Including one that is Historical um, uh, it, To me it's significant uh, Ceylon gets mentioned In here I don't think he'd been to Ceylon At this point but he eventually does go there Right
1: um, and indeed lives there for the second half of his life.
0: Um, he's uh, he, he's familiar with Asia, at least a little bit. And uh, there is a story um, uh, about Genghis Khan, or Chingis, I guess is how it's supposed to be pronounced, um, in his tomb. Do you know about the tomb of uh, Chinggis? I do not. Okay, so in 1227, he died. Um, and with the tradition of the... His people, he was brought to a certain site and buried, uh, but it was uh, a lost tomb. And there's, there's a fascinating sort of backstory to how it was created. But basically, the people who brought him to his place of burial uh, were then killed. Um, and then the people who killed them were killed. And then the people who killed them were killed. <laughs> so that his tomb would not be found. There is a mausoleum in existence, but and there is an idea as to where his burial site is, but the actual burial site is uh, unknown, as far as we can tell. Um, in 1932, there was a movie based on a novel uh, called The Mask of Fu Manchu, novel of the same name, and Fu Manchu, uh, this wonderful, terrible villain, um, was going to uh, find the mask of uh, Chinggis and then take on the, his role as you know the master of the world. And in later science fiction, we have Khan Noonien Singh, a uh, master from uh, the Indian subcontinent, who, after leading basically a, I don't know, some sort of horrible genocide on Earth, is exiled and plans to return um in a tomb not unlike the tomb that's found in the other version of the awakening so there are massive connections um in this story to to history and to the history of science fiction and uh i just think it's it's a a very fascinating sort of um you know sort of time capsule for us to look at and and given how important the the, sc- the scope of the land, um, I, I, I'm i not sure you noticed, but I'm going to just read this line again. I think it's really important. Um, but the master knew nothing of this, nor was his sleep disturbed when it happened again and again and again. So the land tilted and the mighty limestone mountains towered, and, and it happened again and again and again. We're at least... A couple of billion years in the future, I would think. Geologically, this takes a long time. Mountains don't form easily. So if it happens again and again and again, and then finally when his tomb is discovered, it's on a, quote, pedestal of rock, jutting high above an eroded plain. This is, again, very geological. You've got something that is uh, different material than the stuff below, and it stands out like a prominent... Almost uh, architectural feature, but it turns out that this is his tomb. Wow, just great imagery, powerful, powerful storytelling, and so simple, so short. Wonderful story.
1: I agree, but um, there is, for me, a problem with with this, and and also with the 1952 version of it that Clark published in uh, future science fictions, uh, stories. Um, uh, I, I prefer the, the 1952 version, but for reasons that I perhaps will have a chance to discuss, but what I find disturbing in both of them is that they really aren't dramatic. That is, um, what Clark does, and in this he is like much of Lovecraft, he allows us to feel the sensations of someone who is the patient, not the agent in the plot. Mm -hmm. We don't have two people contending about something. We don't have uh, a love triangle. We don't have a question of revenge. What we wind up having is uh, an individual, a viewpoint, and that viewpoint is um, impinged upon, in the case of Lovecraft, by growing horror, in the case of this story, by a fond hope that is almost instantaneously undone. But that, that notion that ah, your hopes can be destroyed, uh, that's the story. There, there's no conflict between human beings and uh, there's uh, no shared hope among human beings. Uh, that story you tell about Genghis Khan having one set of uh, servants after another killed in order to preserve his own solitude works perfectly here
0: mm-hmm.
1: because it is a story about solitude and the fact that it's called the awakening, um, tells us something pretty terrible. <laughs> I, I don't think Clark was aware of that. Uh, honestly, having read pretty much everything that he wrote down to about 1990, um, both fiction and nonfiction and having corresponded with him and spoken with him a couple of times, uh, he just, he he didn't know what was coming out and some of his stuff. I know that's at least what he acknowledged to me uh, and it's what it seems to me and it seems to me that here as well. But the writing of that that patient who is having the world imposed upon him, the writing about the movement of nature and geologic progress, it's spectacular. Mm-hmm. I Made mean, it spectacular, and and that that's true in in the 1952 version as well. But what happens in the 1952 version that gives it for me um, more interest? Now, for you, I understand. I, I believe you appreciate the the concision.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: How much happens in such a sh- small compass? And and that may be the better aesthetic uh, critical approach. Mine sees in the 1952 version so many premonitions of other work of Clark, including his most famous works, um, that I can't help but but be reading these and think, my gosh, all of this was already. Pregnant in what he did mm. um, the way it begins. Uh, the 52 version starts with this paragraph, not master, but Marlon, Marlon was bored with the ultimate boredom that only utopia can supply. He stood before the great window and stared down at the scudding clouds driven by the gale that was racing past the foothills of the city. Sometimes through a rent in the billowing white blanket, he could catch a glimpse of lakes and forests and the winding ribbon of the river that flowed through the empty land. He now so seldom troubled to visit 20 miles away to the west. Rainbow-hued in the sunlight, the upper peaks of the artificial mountain that was City Nine floated above the clouds, a dream island adrift in the cold wastes of the stratosphere. Marlin wondered how many of its inhabitants were staring listlessly across at him. Equally dissatisfied with life, there was, of course, one way of escape, and many had chosen it, but that was so obvious. And Marlin avoided the obvious above all things. Besides, while there was still a chance that life might yet hold some new experience, he would not pass through the door that led to oblivion.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, this in a way uh, sets up just what got set up in the the version a decade earlier. But here we have the question of the boredom of utopia, mm-hmm. which is one of the main um, motivating factors in *Childhood's End*. It is one of the uh, the resonant thematic issues in 2001, and it is in fact the setup for *Against the Fall of Night*, his first published novel in 1948, which he wrote and revised a number of times, and as *The City and the Stars*. Uh, And eventually the 1956 version of The City and the Stars brings all of this to fruition, where we have effectively one person escaping from boredom, going out into the universe, and coming back trying to rejuvenate uh, a humanity that had fallen into fecklessness. Now, here in the 42 version, we read backwards and think, ah, it wasn't just that humanity became feckless. There was a war. And the insects won. But we don't actually see it as a war. Mm -hmm. It may be that humanity just, you know, devolved the way Wells has it. Um, But the insects survived and then they developed their own intelligence. Um, Here in the 52 version, we see geologic time. We see the issue of fertility. We see the problem of boredom. We see these issues that I think... Resonate for us regardless that are us human beings, regardless of the surrounding political situation, whereas the resonances for the 1942 version are much, much less clarion than the later version. But what is clarion, what we do here are those 1942, we're in the middle of war. There, there are monstrous people around. And that switch from Master to Marlin, mm. um, getting from um, self-preservation to dealing with the, the boredom of life, that shift takes us from uh, the young Arthur C. Clarke, who's just involved in the war effort, to the more mature Arthur C. Clarke, Who is now trying to make a career as a writer and address the whole world not just fanzines so if one were studying the evolution of Clark, looking at these two stories one after the other I think would be particularly powerful Mm -hmm. and yet we see right at the beginning um, how well how well he handles the descriptions of nature changing it's the change of nature that he's got right, it's changes in human beings, not so much.
0: Mm-hmm. I, I note that the the stories are word for word almost entirely different. There's very few, it's, it's a rewriting of the theme, but it's not a rewriting of the story. Uh, it's not a modified, it's almost a complete rewrite. The only significant sentence that remains the same is the final one. Um, I will read both. First is uh, the original 42. For in the last moment of his life, as he saw what stood around him, he knew that the long war between man, capital M, and insect, capital I, was ended, and that man was not the victor. And then 52. For in the last moment of his life, he saw those waiting round him. He knew that the ancient war between man, capital M, And insect, small eye had long ago been ended, and that man was not the victor.
1: Yeah, those are uh,
0: very close. Very close.
1: But I think it's it's not simply the theme. In in both cases, um, what we have is the viewpoint consciousness sleeping through enormous amounts of time or suspended for enormous amounts of time. One crucial difference is that the master is mistaken in how long he will be. Um, The uh, Marlin is also mistaken. But the reason that the master is mistaken is because people have forgotten him. Mm -hmm. Whereas the reason that Marlin is mistaken is that the technology failed. It didn't wake him up properly. And I think that's a a fascinating shift. It's not uh, it is the same plot in one way, but it attributes the the problems that human beings are susceptible to to something quite different. Mm -hmm. In Marlon's version, it has to do with how you are among people. By the time he gets to 1952, Clark is actually just saying it's the nature of the world. You know, we just can't control stuff. Um, philosophically, I think that the later version is more powerful. Emotionally, I think the earlier version speaks more directly to human beings. Yep. But isn't it amazing that Clark, that we could do some psychobiography on him, but I, I think we shouldn't. Clark writes this in 42. He writes it again in 52, but really... Um, If we look at those premonitions of the city and the stars in the 52 version, he's already writing it in 48 Mm -hmm. with against the fall of night. And then he writes it again as the city and the stars. And then he writes it again as the revised version of the city and the stars. Actually, just at novel length and what we know from his his uh, own autobiographical statements He wrote this thing as a novel seven times. (laughs) And here we've got at least two more short story versions of it. And you kind of have to ask, wouldn't he agree? There's always more to say.
0: (laughs) And remember... You can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for reading short and deep.